Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Morning, Penny. Morning, Pam. It's lovely to be here again. And isn't it nice to get up in daylight? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> to get here. It is. It's really wonderful. And we've had some, um, well, I think further inland it's been a bit dry, but down our way I've had some, we've had some really good rain. Mm. So my garden, I've spent, uh, my life's been very busy recently. My garden got completely out of control and I've had knee-high grass through most of the garden. So right. in the last week I've finally had time to get stuck into it. I'm sure I've got a huge load of seed that I'm going to have to deal with oh, yes. later on. But if I get it well mulched, um, it should be okay for the moment. But um, everything's just grown I so know. amazingly. And there's, it's just the garden's such a joy, even full of weeds. It's, there's so many things are still flowering and doing wonderful things. And, and I've got my tomatoes in, which is pretty essential at the moment. And the garlic's doing well. And if I'm behind with other things, it doesn't really matter. And the things that I've lost because they've been crowded out by weeds, I just have to look at them as a space to put in something new and different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the wonderful part is that, um, you know, all, all the, the grass and the lawns haven't gone brown yet. We've still got green around. Yeah, we have. Yeah, which is, which terrific. is lovely. So we're yeah. very, if, I think if we're in those areas where we've had decent rain, that's great. But I know that further north in the States. Oh, for sure. And further east, there's some um, people are still really struggling. Yes. So. We don't want to gloat too loud. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we also have to say a very, very good morning to talk, Dr. Chris Williams, who's a lecturer in urban horticulture there at Burnley campus. Great to be back, Pam. Oh, good to have you back, Chris. And I'm dying to hear all about um, what you've been up to. Because sure. I'm sure there's been a lot happening since we spoke to you last time. Which was last year, I think. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Well, you were heavily into sweet potatoes yes. last year. Yeah, that's still on the agenda. That's still on the agenda, yeah. but there's Lots a lot more on the agenda Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Okay. Well, how about telling us a little bit? Well, it's just a con- continuing to develop this novel crops project, which actually gets a little bit out of hand because the more things you realise you can eat, the more I try and propagate them with my sort of small team, which includes a lot of student volunteers. Um, and... Uh, so I'm also trying, really trying hard to get into the indigenous edible plants now as wow. well, uh, okay. with a with a fairly significant research project with a student mm. looking at a a, um, a desert sweet potato, of which there are two in Australia, uh, ancient crops of Aboriginal people in sort of arid areas and semi-arid, mm. and uh, also a, um, an, an indigenous yam, a true yam in the genus Dioscoria from Western Australia, which is, was one of the plants that. Um, uh, where there was an account by the explorer Lieutenant Gray, who became Governor Gray of South Australia and Western Australia, and he, he, that's one of the descriptions of Aboriginal farming that is really intense. Like just his description in the 1840s, I think it was, of these f- organised fields of this particular plant. Mm. But it's really hard to germinate from seed, so that's the big challenge at the moment. Okay. But, but once you have some, very easy to propagate from cuttings and from uh, the, the, the big long tubers themselves. Mm. So, yeah. Now, for listeners that didn't catch up with you when yes. you were on last time, yep. tell them a little bit more about the philosophy behind the whole project. So 
the idea of a novel crops project is is really, I mean, in some level, it's personal. What's novel to me? <laughs> um, but it, it's about saying, well, we have this huge interest now in in food gardens. Uh, so it's always interesting to have new stuff to, to, to challenge our preconceptions of what can and can't grow in Melbourne, let's sure. say, so southeast Australia, that's what the focus is, um, just to in, in, enhance the experience people have in their gardens, just new stuff you can grow. Um, but really the project's all about recognising that we do have this extraordinary multicultural community. It, it is um, so diverse, and people come here... Uh, from all over the world and either have a go at growing the things that they used to like to grow and eat or they miss out because they can't work out how to adapt to Melbourne's climate. Mm. It's a bit of a mixture in my experience. So we, we're trying to, to look at things that, uh, like, for example, sweet potatoes is a big one, ginger, turmeric, taro, a lot of these perennial plants that theoretically at a first glance you'd say, oh, it's not going to be very optimal in Melbourne, but with a few tricks you can actually get really good crops. Uh, and then get really, also then get really sort of out into the fun margins as well. Like lotus, for example, is okay. one that I love to grow. It's such an intensely beautiful flower. Oh, yes. But you can eat the rhizome, obviously, lotus. And then you find out they get, they're pretty small in Melbourne, but, you, but functionally as a plant, they're really good and you'll always get beautiful flowers. So sometimes in the Novel Crops Projects, we grow things that uh, food, food value-wise might be just a bit of fun every now and again. But in terms of a beautiful garden plant, an ornamental plant, actually it turns out it's something that is mm. very, very functional, mm. very mm. achievable. So that's yep. that's it in a nutshell. Yes, yes. Yeah. Great. And uh, very and 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 also uh, uh, fantastic for me to be able to have a project where you're just looking at new plants, how to grow them, and then it's very engaging for students as well. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I mean, for instance, if, if we go back to your, your sweet mm. potato yeah. crops, you know, that you were really concentrating on last sure. year. I mean, when Penny and I um, were, were talking and interviewing the gardeners in, in the community gardens, mm. at that stage in Melbourne, they weren't getting big tumours. They yeah. hadn't adapted um, yeah. to the climate of Melbourne, and so they, they weren't actually achieving much from the point of view and of edible crops apart from cooking the leaves. Sure. Um, but but you've managed to to achieve quite good tu- and you I know, think tubers now, haven't you? Absolutely, and and in fact, for our one growing season, so you know, let's call it October till April, you know, that sort of warm part of Melbourne's uh, year, they're huge crops. They're they're not mm. they're not suboptimal or marginal. They're they're big yields. In fact, the, some of the uh, harvests we've had, for example, we did the big project with Fair Share were, because um, we worked this out, Susie's got and I <laughs> worked this out, that was Bundaberg-level crops. Right, right. So wow. That, so what was going on? So the real trick with sweet potatoes is just baking full sun. So, you know, I've, I've learned the hard way. They'll actually grow very well in even very shady conditions. So we get this beautiful plant, but they trick you. When they're in the shade, they, they you know, I'm anthropomorphizing, but they, they'll say, no, this is okay. I don't need to produce a tuber. This is nice, soft conditions, right? Yep. So it's really harsh. So they're the perfect plant for that terrible west-facing or that spot that has that really harsh western sun in summer. So as long as they're watered and mm. it doesn't have to be excessive, you will get huge Crops, and it also depends on the variety too. So I've built up to about fifteen or sixteen types now, of which are three or four are ornamental. So really, just growing for their yellow leaves or their purple leaves. But the rest, and that's the thing that's so exciting about the novel crops project, is not just discovering the things that we could grow here, but also that within crops that we we buy, 
we think, oh, you know, sweet potatoes are just orange or maybe purple. No, there's actually all sorts of types. So, you know, we had great success last year with a, a type that's called red garnet, which is purple skin, purple on the inside, which hit the mainstream supermarkets briefly for about a month. Right. right. But that's a really fudgy one. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. Not okay. necessarily sweeter than the others, but, but this kind of texture that's amazing. So you discover all that kind of diversity as well. Yeah, sure. So, um, no, they're very doable down here. Mm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. Um, I must get to some community announcements, and we'll get back to this sure. a lot more, Chris, um, in detail. But um, there's so much going on that I really have to wade through some of this so that listeners, if they're planning today or next weekend, uh, they can think about some of these uh, various events. Uh, now, first up, a uh, big mention uh, about the Yarra Valley Plant Fair and Garden Expo. Now, this is an inaugural event. They're hoping to make it an annual event, um, but it is running today, uh, starting at 10 a.m. through till 5 o'clock this afternoon. It's at 125 Quail Road in Wandon, and uh, there is a huge amount happening. I I popped into there yesterday. Um, There's all sorts of plant uh, stalls. There's um, irrigation. There's there's gardening implements, uh, you name it, there's everything out there. And as well as that, there's a very extensive program of speakers. Uh, there's two separate stages running. Um, there's what they call the permaculture stage, which has uh, a, a range of speakers, to, uh, and they're covering things like what is uh, permaculture design, bush foods and survival plants, using herbs for food, medicinal and preventative purposes, keeping chickens in the backyard, uh, winter versus summer pruning, zero waste concept. Then on the second stage, you've got uh, some uh, more well-known speakers. You've got Nigel Ruck from the Garden Gurus, James Wall from 3AW and Garden World, Pete the Permi and Attila Capitani. So, um, as I say, two stages running extensively all day and, uh, and just such a huge range of plant stalls out there. I couldn't believe the range. Um, so uh, anything from sort of roses to peonies to herbs to uh, you name it, they're all out there. So, again, that address is 125 Quail Road in Wandon. And uh, if you're up that way... Also on today uh, at the Wandon North Public Hall, so very close by, uh, there is a bonsai sale day and display. Now this will have a great uh, selection of bonsai and bonsai related items. There will be trees, starters and nursery stock, pots, books and tools, uh, bonsai soil, uh, pine bark and uh, orchid pots in various sizes. So this is at the Wandon North Public Hall which is Warburton Highway in Wandon on the corner of Clegg Road at the roundabout. And as I say, that's only about two minutes away from the uh, Plant Fair and Garden Expo. So um, a good chance to, uh, to have a look at both of those. Uh, now also on um, today, and again, this is at uh, Quail Road in Wandon as well, Waratina Lavender Farm is open um, from 9am and uh, they've got garden walks, music and entertainment there as well at the uh, farm. So that's two two big happenings in Quail Road. Um, 
and uh, also the uh, the uh, bonsai sale, as I mentioned. And finally, also in uh, a similar area up in Emerald, the Salvia Society have got their annual plant sale on today. Now, this is at uh, Nobelius Heritage Park in Crichton Road in Emerald, uh, 11.30am through to 3pm, free entry for that one. So plenty out in that area. Now, the other thing that's been taking place over the last weekend and also this weekend is Garden Design Fest. Now, uh, last uh, weekend they were looking at uh, rural Victoria, but uh, this weekend they're looking at Melbourne metropolitan area and also down on the Mornington Peninsula. Now, there are a lot of gardens open. Um, The easy thing probably is for you to jump online If you just uh, type in Garden Design Fest, all one word, it will all come up with a list of all the gardens that are open. Uh, Single uh, price for single garden entry depends on the size of the garden, so ranging from $5, $8 or $12. If you want all garden entry, um, then that's going to be uh, uh, $60, and that will cover both metropolitan uh, Melbourne and down the peninsula, so... um, You'd be hard-pressed, I think, to cover all those gardens yeah, in one day. And I think day. the Metropolitan ones were open last weekend, weren't they? And no, the, no, the that was peninsula. only rural. Oh, okay. Only rural. All right, so it's... Me- yeah. Yes, oh, yes. So they combine Metropolitan <coughs> and the Peninsula There's some terrific today. gardens down on the Peninsula open, so... Yes, yeah, I've yeah. Had, a, had a look. Thinking, okay, can I get there? Yes, there's some really. I had really a look too, and ways. I thought I just can't get there. Yeah. unfortunately. But the wonderful part mm. of Garden Design Fest, and this only happens once every two years, is that uh, the actual designers are in the garden that they've designed. Yep. So you can wander around their garden and have a good chat to the designer on um, maybe issues they faced with the design or with um, soil or you can mm. learn so much from talking to the actual designer. So the one in Dramana looked really interesting and it's, it's interesting because it goes down the slope so most of the photographs of it are from up above looking right. down and it's not often right. that you get that perspective no. on a garden. <clears throat> so that was the one that particularly appealed to me. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well there's plenty there but as I say if you want that full list of uh, gardens just jump onto their website and it will all come up with all the addresses and everything else you need. Now, uh, Chris, friends of Burnley have got a big plant sale coming up. They do, Pam. So uh, this Wednesday, Wednesday coming, the 21st of November, from 12pm to 3pm, and they have a huge list, which I have in front of me. But I'm selling some of my stuff there as well on their behalf oh, or for them. Yes. Yes. Uh, including, there'll be a small selection of sweet potatoes. I'm a little, being a little bit, uh, I keep them back a bit because I have a lot of community projects to give them to. Yes. Um, and Penny, I'm happy to give some to your, your guys if they're interested, but, um, or to any of your projects. But, uh, but there'll be a few there, different varieties. There'll be, uh, quite a few Abyssinian bananas there this week. Wow. So, uh, they're, they're an extraordinary, um, Plant and as Penny's saying, they are sold a few places in Melbourne. I know Roy Rama Nursery have them, Diggers have them, um, and uh, they're they're one of the largest herbaceous plants in the world. I think number three or four. Mm. Can I just say, yeah, if, sure. you, if you go to Heronswood mm. and go right down the bottom of the hill, um, not not where the herb garden is, but sort of before that, where the perennial borders are, there's some Abyssinian bananas there that are several years 
They've been there for several years and they are huge and they are just stunningly beautiful. Yeah. The shininess of the, of the base of the, I don't know, what, what do you call it? Well, you can't it, call it a trunk. It's a pseudostem, it's technically. Yes, okay. Yeah. So it's like garlic. So it's a pseudostem. Yeah. And it's a, they are just amazing plants, but I didn't realise that you could actually eat anything that was part of them. So that's, I thought that was yeah, so that's the really exciting thing when you investigate <laughs> plants. Because I, I first saw them at um, Hendrik Van Leeuwen's garden in uh, Hughesdale. It used to be in G- uh, Design Fest. He's a Burnley um, graduate and you know, colleague of mine, I guess. And uh, I thought, that's an amazing um, plant. And he was on Gardening Australia and um, uh, you know, they looked at it and said, that's, what is that thing? And then I just happened to Google it and it was like, you know, sub- major survival food in the highlands of Ethiopia. Mm. And I thought, wow, here's this thing that, first of all, it's unusual. We're just looking at it purely for its absolutely massive leaves because it must get to at least, I've got a ma- big one in my backyard that would be four or five metres high, yeah, I think. Yeah, the ones that dig is at least that, yeah. Yeah, and so anyway, what they eat is the big underground corn, which, okay. I mean, all bananas have that, but this, yes, one, this yes. is huge. So we... Uh, there were two things I wanted to do. When we started growing them at, at Burnley, uh, we wanted to, first of all, see if we could get them to fruit. So we had the seed, and so we did that. So they produce these really quite interesting orange bananas, little small orange bananas. Now, they, you can eat the flesh from them, but there's not much of it because they have massive black seeds, just like Cavendish bananas would have yep. once had, right? Yeah, sure. So anyway, then, when, then these things, we planted them too close together, and they are monocarpic, so they only have one flowering event, and then they die. So... We decided to dig one, which is a problem, not a problem, but you have to realise they are a short-term plant, or they can be. I've got one that's 10 years old. Okay. Anyway, um, we dug this thing up. The corn was 40 kilos. Goodness. So I did this with a prac with my students, and we sh- obviously got this thing into a wheelbarrow and uh, chopped it up. We're going to try and uh, grow it vegetatively as well. You, If you get the corn, you can slice it and you can force it up shoots. Otherwise, it doesn't produce pups like a normal banana okay. or other bananas. Yes, yes. It's... Um, our attempt at doing that, one of them rotted. That was a bit of a tragedy. That's another story. But anyway, we chopped up some of this thing and boiled it up to see what it was like. So it was a sort of like a watery potato. Okay. Now, obviously, I'm not Ethiopian. I have no idea what I'm doing with this thing, right? So yes. I've seen all sorts of amazing recipes. and uh, But it, it's so – its story is fascinating. So coffee was uh, domesticated in – the highlands of Ethiopia. Mm. So this thing, the giant Abyssinian banana, was, you know, naturally the thing that shaded coffee when it was domesticated about 1,200 years ago. So it has this actually this very strong association with coffee if you really know your stuff. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's it's we, we've we've grown a lot from seed now. So we probably have um, I don't know I think we'll probably have about 20 small ones. Then we'll probably have some quite advanced ones as well. Okay. They're, they're one of those plants like. Look, they're in the genus Insete, that's what they call them in Ethiopia, after the genus. And um, they're in the Musaceae, in the banana family. And uh, so they're like bananas, they're very easy to transplant. So anyway, that's one of the things we'll have there, Yeah, Abyssinian banana. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Okay, so um, it's going to be located outside the Student Union building? Yes, at the Burnley campus in Richmond. Yes, uh, parking in Yarra Boulevard there, Indeed. of course. And um, you mentioned the plant list. You can actually go to the Friends website and get the full plant list there. Yep. Um, and that uh, website is fobg.org.au. So yep. nice and easy. Fantastic. So how, how many different species would you have available? The, you know, just approximately. Uh, of my stuff? or well, of, no, uh, no, no, the whole lot. It looks to me, looking at this list here, without putting my glasses on, it looks like uh, I reckon about 150, 200 yeah, different, yep, yeah, and lots yeah. of salvias. So it's huge. And the salvias it is. are gorgeous at the moment. So, it, you know, 
a lot of them, even in pots, would be in flower. And well, be really um, Fran, who's at, you know, Fran Mason, who hopefully is listening right now, <laughs> one <laughs> of the drivers of the Friends of Burnley Garden, she's an absolute salvia yeah. nut and expert. So, yeah, mm. quality salvias. Okay. Um, we should say that uh, cash only for purchases on the day. They can't Indeed. take uh, credit cards or anything. Yeah. No, I'm not set up for that. Yeah. Okay. Now, something, uh, something else that ties in completely with this morning's discussions yeah. is that at the Immigration uh, Museum at the moment, they have an exhibition. Um, it's running daily, 10 till 5, and this is all about, uh, about uh, migrant people, the waves that came through Victoria mm. and, uh, of course, brought with them their culinary practices, their, uh, their farming and uh, growing conditions, and uh, this whole exhibition is um, celebrating the diversity and history of gardening and food in multicultural Victoria. So uh, as well as that, uh, that uh, display that's on at the moment, there's going to be some workshops run um, next Saturday, the 24th of November. And these workshops are being run by Cultivating Community. Uh, the first one is um, a free one for, um, it's entitled for budding food gardeners, but for children of all ages. Uh, so there's going to be a range of free outdoor activities um, uh, to encourage children to find hidden treasures, grow their own food, pot up a plant to take home and save some seeds for the future. Now, um, uh, as I say, it's open to children of all ages. It must be accompanied by an adult. It's totally free. It's running 10 a.m. through to 12 p.m. Uh, next Saturday. And then in the afternoon, there's um, a workshop for adults, and this is entitled Interesting Edible Plants to Grow at Home. So, again, Chris, <laughs> right up your alley. This runs from 1 p.m. through to 3 p.m., uh, it's how to grow, and grow a range of unusual edible plants from around the world, tips for harvesting and use, plus opportunity to propagate some plants to take home. Bookings are essential for this one. There is a cost. Um, adults, $30, concession, 27 If you're a member of the um, museum, 25 or there's a member's concessional uh, cost for $22. And uh, then on 2nd of December... They're running another free workshop, uh, which will run 11 a.m. through to 1 p.m., and this is for both adults and children. Um, you can join in making heart-shaped birdseed ornaments to take home and hang in the garden. So uh, some wonderful things there if you want to uh, pop along to the Immigration Museum. And uh, the Immigration Museum is in... Uh, I just had it in front of me. Here we go. It's at uh, 400 Flinders Street in Melbourne. All right. Uh, we're nearly getting, of course, uh, with springtime, there's always so, so much, much to do to cover. Cover. I do have just a couple more I really need to get to. Uh, firstly, um, the uh, Australian, there's a, a workshop, a half-day workshop down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens it's all about uh, Australian alpine and subalpine plants and the threat of sandbar deer. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it's running next Sunday, the 25th of November, 9.30 a.m. for a 10 o'clock start. It will be held in the uh, Australian Garden Auditorium there down at Cranbourne Gardens. Uh, start with a tea or a coffee. Then uh, the first session, Neville Walsh, who's a uh, senior conservation 
botanist at the Royal Botanic Gardens, will be talking about the high country and providing an overview of the flora. Second session, Megan Hurst, who's Seed Bank Officer for the uh, Royal Botanic Gardens uh, Conservation Seed Bank. She'll be talking about the beautiful alpine daisies that she studied. Uh, Coffee and tea break. Third session, Bronnie Swartz and uh, Matt Henderson, a horticulturalist at Cranbourne, and they'll reveal plants for displaying subalpine plants in the garden at Cranbourne. And uh, finally, the fourth session with Zach Walker, who's a research officer at the Research Centre for Applied Alpine Ecology at La Trobe Uni, and he's going to be looking at the impacts of sandbar deer on some of the threatened alpine plants um, on the Bogong High Plains. So the workshop should finish about 1pm. Now, costs, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $30, non-members, $40, students, $15, Bookings are essential. You can go to the website, which is rbgfriendscranbourne, all one word, .org.au, or you can email bookings at rbgfriendscranbourne.org.au for that one. Pam, can I just say that I think that's going to be an absolutely fascinating um, mm. session. And, and I, with climate change, you know, some of these plants are under threat, particularly the, the alpine ones as, as our climate warms. And, and, you know, it's really important that we're out there, we're identifying them, we're understanding them and that we're talking to people about them so that we at least understand what we're losing. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I think everyone should be going along. Yep, definitely. <laughs> Okay, uh, Open Gardens Victoria have uh, next weekend have got a particularly excellent uh, garden opening up. Now this is uh, Musk Farm. This is uh, the garden that was created by the late Stuart Rattle um, at Musk near Dalesford. Now uh, that uh, that uh, property was sold a while back, and I didn't know if they'd ever be opening up again. But I th- mm. I'm delighted that it's going Great to be news. opening for the public again next weekend. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful garden, well worth going to see. Um, it was uh, the whole property was transformed in consultation with uh, with Stuart's good friend Paul Bangay, and um, it's a 3.5 acre garden comprising 14 garden rooms with connecting paths and hedging, and it really is a very, very spectacular um, garden to visit. Now. There's a big provisor with visiting this now. There is um, no parking available at all at the property. There are two uh, transport service options. Firstly, there is a bus shuttle um, or a shuttle bus departing every half hour uh, with the first service leaving at 10am from Dalesford Secondary College. Now, that's for a gold coin donation. Or uh, there's a lovely vintage train ride departing hourly with first service at 9.45 from Dalesford Railway Station. Now, the cost of this is $12 return. So two delightful ways of getting to uh, Musk Farm. But uh, as I say, no cars at all, no parking. You either catch the shuttle bus um, from Dalesford Secondary College, which is in 39 Smith Street, Dalesford, or you catch the vintage train shuttle service, cost of $12 return, and that's departing hourly from Dalesford Railway Station in Hill Street, Dalesford. So uh, do take note of, of that. 
uh, if you're planning to go up there. Now, entry for the garden is $12 uh, for adults, $5 for children. Under-18s are free. There'll be lots of extras, Devonshire teas, cheese platters, wine tasting and sales, um, exhibition and sale of overwrought garden sculpture, exhibition and mini workshops on botanical art. Uh, there'll be book sales of Stuart Rattle's Musk Farm, uh, which was written by Anne-Marie Keeley and Paul Bangay, and there'll be a plant store as well. Now, um, we have been very um, delighted to be able to offer our listeners, or one of our listeners, um, a free double pass to go and visit Musk Farm next weekend. So the first uh, person to ring in on 94190155 can get that free double pass uh, to go to Musk Farm next weekend, and that double pass will be posted out to you. So that number... If you'd like to get that double pass, 94190155 for that free double pass. And just very, very briefly, um, because it's about as much as we've got time for, we must move on, um, is that Friends of Kyneton Botanical Gardens have got a garden ramble on. Now, there's five open gardens um, uh, opening. This is taking place on uh, the... uh, Sunday, next Sunday, the 25th of November, 10 a.m. through to 5 p.m. There's a cost of $50, but that covers those five gardens. Um, registrations are at between 9 and 10 a.m. at the Kyneton Botanic Gardens. Um, lunch, BYO will visit a local eatery. Children under 14 will be free. No dogs allowed. And if you'd like more information on those uh, gardens, you can phone Anne Tomlinson, who's going to be leading uh, these uh, garden uh, tours, and her number is 54223621. Okay, uh, it's high time we do open our lines. If you are interested in having a chat this morning, we have uh, Chris Williams and also Penny Woodward in the studio. Lots of edible food to talk about. Uh, the number... Nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. And I'm also, uh, I think, very shortly we're going to be uh, also crossing to something very exciting to talk about. But Penny, while we've got the opportunity, um, you wanted to mention uh, Organic Gardener magazine, and yep. there's, a, there's a very special article in uh, this edition. Um, yeah, look, there's, I actually think there's, well, there's lots, lots of special of ones, articles. but there's one in particular you wanted to mention. Yes, um, look, one in particular about the uh, community garden down at Werribee Park. So Werribee Park is an extraordinary place, and I have to confess I had not been there until I went down to talk to the people to do this interview. It's, it's, um, it's an amazing property of 153 hectares. It's got this fabulous old building on it. Most of it's run by Parks Victoria. It's got the State Rose Garden in part of it. It's got um, an amazing heritage orchard in another part of it. But the thing that I went down to, um, the part that I went down to look at is the community gardens down there. Uh, And they they started... um, sort of in, in the way so many of these things start is that they, the local, the Parks Victoria Rangers asked for some volunteer help to help with the gardens. And people, women from the Karen community in Werribee um, came along to just get their fingers in the soil, as you and I know how important that is to people, particularly from rural backgrounds. 
And it turned out that the, the people from the Karen community, which um, they, they are an ethnic group from my, Myanmar, from the highlands in Myanmar, and very much an agricultural group, and, and they have been to a large extent persecuted in, in Myanmar, which is why they, they are refugees and ended up in Australia. But they were in suburban, tiny little suburban houses, unable to garden and there, or to, to grow things. And the, there were serious mental health problems mm. for a lot of them. And this happens with a lot of refugee people who come from agricultural backgrounds in particular. Um, anyway, they volunteered and, and, and they suddenly realised the, the wonderful... Um, People at at um, at Werribee Park realised that you know these these are amazing people, amazing resource. They needed help, um, and so they started establishing community, a community garden there for them. And they have this incredible property with beautiful bluestone buildings. So it has this the thing. One of the things that really came through to me was that originally these areas would have been farmed by the local indigenous people. And then they were farmed by by the white settlers, um, and now it's gone back to being farmed by people from countries all over the world. So mm. that, you know, there's this wonderful feeling of a continuation of occupation, you know, in a in a good way. Um, and so it's not just the the Karen people, but there are also the Chin people, also from Myanmar, which are another ethnic group. Um, and there's Vietnamese people. And these groups all got together to establish these initial gardens. And they then found that um, the women encouraged some of the young people to come along um, and and the women as well. And they, they realised that they needed not only to be able to garden but also to work towards having jobs. And so Gordon Tafe got involved. Um, and there, and there are a whole lot of other aims which helps to resettle um, refugee people were involved as well. And um, Parks Victoria, the Wyndham Council, the Brotherhood of St. Nor- St. Lawrence, Nature West have a program there which the, which the refugee um, people also got involved with, with, gen- with, um, with growing uh, Australian native plants from seed as well. So you know, there's this huge cross-pollination with, with all these groups. The Karen people now have three different big um, gardens settled, you know, nestling in amongst all these beautiful bluestone buildings. They're growing a huge range of of different plants. Um, The first two gardens that they established, they wanted to, um, they just wanted to grow, but then they asked for a little bit more space where they could grow the way they would have grown in their home country. So this last garden mm. was established, you know, with the plant combinations and things. That, Fantastic. Because they, they'd wow. managed to source a lot of their own plants. Um, then then the refugee community changed a bit um, and Somali people started moving into the, into the Werribee region. So they realised that they needed a garden for the Somali people because the, the cultures are all very different. Mm. Um, so that they don't necessarily mix in their gardens because they want to grow different things. Yes, of course. But the Karen people, um, along with the rangers um, from Parks Victoria, who are just amazing people, helped the Somali people to establish their garden um, so that so that you know there's this this cross cross communication and at this and as I sorry I started talking about the fact that um, the Gordon Tafe got involved and and something several hundred 
people now have gone through using the community gardens as the working space for, for the training that they've, the horticultural um, cert to um, qualification that they've been getting from mm. Gordon Tafe. And then, and then they've gone from there to work in the community because it's a market garden community in that area. There's, there are jobs and they're yeah. looking for people to work in that community. Yeah. So it's this wonderful story of people working together productively to um, give refugee people a purpose and and jobs mm. and um, you know a life in in the new country and I, the lovely thing is that it's open um, every seven days a week all the year round mm. so if you want to go and have a look at these community gardens talk to some of the Korean people or the Somali people and there are now some um, Sudanese people who are, they're looking at establishing a garden there as well and the Somali and the Karen people are helping the Sudanese people along with the Parks Victoria and Ames. And it's a fantastic, know, it's just a, great it's story. It's such a good story. Yes. It's sort of hidden away in the in a back part of this huge Werribee property, which does other amazing things. And the, and it's not just all these people helping each other, but the people, and they're mostly older people who are involved with preserving the heritage orchard are also interacting with all these people. Mm. So, you know, it's this cross-pollination of all sorts of things. And Mm. it was, I just, with so much bad news so often around these things that get highlighted in our media, it was so good to see something that really worked. Um, So, look, I just wanted, you know, in writing the article, I I, I wanted to talk about how how all this cooperation was working mm. and I just think it's a it's a fabulous thing. But if you want to go down and see what they're doing, it's not closed in any way. You can go down there and you can just walk over there and talk to the people who are working in the gardens. That's brilliant. That's so, really I'm brilliant. definitely going. I've never been. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, look it's um I, I just think it's a, it's amazing. So yeah, go and go and have a look and, and um yeah enjoy the the positivity of it all absolutely and and how good it is when it works yep yeah yep. no brilliant story penny great Thank you. um now i'm delighted to say that uh online we have karen sutherland good morning karen good morning pam and penny hi karen hi karen i thought chris might enjoy penny's story yes <laughs> that's right now, I have to say a congratulations to to the two of you, to Penny and, and Karen, because um, you've managed, along with uh, Janice uh, Sutton, to produce this incredible volume of a book. Um, it's entitled Tomato, No So Grow and Feast, and it's been um, a real collaboration between the three of you, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, Pam, and it's... Um it's, wow, it's a lot of work to collaborate between three people, can I tell you? Particularly if one lives in Tasmania. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, Penny and I don't live that close either. No, that's true, you know, that's true. A lot of modern technology, has Skype, Skype has been helpful. Yes. Lots and lots and lots of emails and, of course, working with the book designer on um, online. So um, the main issue has been more the um, the inability of local internet to work properly because, <laughs> you know, the technology's out there, but the right. internet just doesn't quite come up to scratch, unfortunately. Yep. Now, you were each, you were each um, allocated quite specific sections uh, to be responsible for, so you were definitely uh, all about the, uh, the sowing and growing, uh, Karen? Yes, everything from raising seeds all the way, you know, various ways of doing that, all the way through, <coughs> excuse me, the tying, the pruning, 
um, protecting in various ways, and of course a big section of pests and diseases because mm. there, I think there's uh, four or six that might have been up, up to six thousand words on pests and diseases in the end. Yes, right. So lots of photos. I was I was fascinated that you um, that you also mentioned, firstly uh, things like. Um, Pruning, because that's quite a controversial <laughs> issue amongst gardeners. I'm a pro pruner. You're a pro pruner. On the on the right varieties, I better better not say too much until I read the book. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah. I suppose we quoted the fact that, uh, or I quoted the fact that diggers had um, done research in this, and they they discovered that, or you know came up with the idea that the more pruning you do, you actually don't increase your yield, and so the reason why you prune is. For instance, if you're growing in a pot, you really only want to retain one main stem, so you'd remove all the other laterals. If you're growing in a small space, you might also do the same. So for different purposes, mm. if you're growing in a, you know, a, a typical metal trainer cage, then two or three stems or not pruning as much at all or just to keep things tidy is a lot easier. Yep. And you will mm. get more yield from not pruning, but you do need to allow the leaves in some way with your support method to get airflow because not pruning at all means that you you know you can run up against a lot more pests and diseases just because of the thickness of the foliage. Yep, sure, sure. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating this one because I, I did the experiment once, inadvertently, and sure there were more fruit, but they were pretty small and and they all came at once like a Roma tomato, pretty okay, much, sort yes. of, and, and then they sprawled, so it wasted space and the leaves were dirty. And I just thought, oh, okay, get pruning now. This is about. And that's what the commercial growers do. Mm. But I will say, I got a student once to do a review of the the academic pruning literature on tomatoes for, um, you know, the really full-on commercial people, and it was frightening. You know, they analyze carbohydrate, leaf, you know, photosynthetic. It's like grape, it's like it was, grape growing, really. It, it yeah. was just an, another world, exactly. Yeah. So I just, yeah. But what I, I mean, what we've done is, it's like, as, as you know, Chris, and as, as Penny and Pam know too, mm. There are so many ways of doing things in gardening, and it's yes. what suits your garden. And also, of course, don't forget that there's 223 varieties in this, in this book that Penny's grown, that Penny's exactly. catalogued. Exactly. And they all have different ways of growing. So, I mean, you know, the, the typical pruning argument really is based around the indeterminate tomatoes. So it doesn't really flow through this in the same way to the to the determinant or the yeah. tomatoes. So, you know, it, it, what we're trying to do with this book is educate tomato growers or would-be tomato growers as well and I mean you find that even people who've been growing for years just don't really have a good grip on the various terminologies and the variety of tomatoes that are out there and mm. we, we do also mention because this is a gardening show that we've chosen to use the word variety instead of cultivar because of the fact that we've got quite a big cooking section you know there's one third of cooking in the book and we decided that because we're going for that audience as well we needed to use a word that was more um, accessible to that audience. So, yep. so yes, when, when you're using variety, people might be thinking, what are they talking about? But, yeah, pretty much just interchangeable with cultivar. Well, you've just dropped two other words in there, and that was determinate and indeterminate. Mm. I think you better explain that to listeners. Okay. So indeterminate means that they just don't have an end point in their growing. They will keep growing. And the reason why they stop growing at the end of the season is because the growing season ends. That we get cold, In other words, in Melbourne, we get cold weather, or Victoria, we get cold weather. And so they do, they can grow for longer if you keep them growing. And the thing that usually knocks them out, say, up in Sydney, because I interview growers all over Australia, or, you know, representing different parts of Australia, let's say, and they are more knocked out by disease. So in Sydney, my cousin who I interviewed who happens to just be an exceptional tomato home tomato grower and has a lot of really in, innovative methods, 
and he said, you know, he grows two crops per summer growing season. Mm. And the first crop he puts in really early so he can harvest before the worst of the humidity and he gets two crops that way. But they would keep growing all the way through except that the diseases knock them out. You know, they, they just have issues with yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Penny, I want to get back to you because I'd like you to explain to listeners the role that the Royal T- Tasmanian Botanic Gardens had in, in this whole creation of the book. Okay. Um, I wrote an article uh, for Organic Gardener magazine about um, what what they were doing down there, which is that um, Margot White, who's the horticult- one of the horticulturalists in the gardens down there, um, as part of their uh, plant sale each year, she started growing a few tomatoes, sort of almost accidentally. And they sold out so quickly that she thought, oh, maybe we should do some more next year. Um, and she ended up selling... Uh, Six, seven thousand tomatoes seedlings of a whole lot of different varieties. Right. So, so, um, and, and obtaining them from seed suppliers all over Australia, uh, and to some extent from overseas. And, um, she now has a seed bank there of something like 500 different, and this is heirloom tomatoes, so purely heirloom tomatoes. And, raising large sums of money for the Botanic mm. Gardens. And about two and a half years ago, um, after I'd written this article, Margot said to me, um, look, we've got the 200th anniversary of the gardens coming up in, in 2018. Um, why don't you write a book about tomatoes for us? And I said no, because I had decided I wasn't going to write any more <laughs> books. I had other things I wanted to do with my life. Um, Margot was pretty persistent uh, in, a very, in a very nice way. <laughs> And then after a while, I figured that um, I didn't have to do it on my own. And that was when I thought of Karen and of Janice and thought, well, maybe I could ask them to write sections of it and I could write part of it and it wouldn't be such a huge thing for, for, for each one of us. Person, yeah. And the other thing that really appealed to me was that um, maybe I thought maybe we could self, self-publish. Mm. So I've, I've been really lucky to have fantastic publishers over the years, but they have an awful lot of control over what the book looks like. And um, and just once I wanted to have a book where I could say, yeah, look, I want this photo in there because I love it or for whatever reason or I want this on the cover because... Um, and, and, look, we ended up with a much bigger book than we probably should have had and a more expensive book as I far as... I tell you what, you can't read it in bed easily. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> um, no. But, but it was... Well, it's not really meant to be read. No, I know, but sometimes <laughs> but that's the was, only time I get to read. I'm flicking through it live now. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I'm unbiased and it's beautiful. Well, it that's, I guess yeah. that was sort of what we wanted to, was to produce, produce a really beautiful book. And... and um, yeah, uh, and I think it is beautiful and, and as an end result, and, and it's actually selling really well, which is really nice too. So, um, so, that was where it started from. Okay. It's from Margot. So yes. whenever, I always, I just blame Margot for, <laughs> for anything to do with it. Now, Penny, I also, I'd like you to explain to listeners because the, the definition of heirloom has changed. Look, well, in my head, when I saw yeah. what you'd written, it, yeah. it, it's changed for me anyway. Yeah. Look, the, you will find that there are a lot of um, people who, who talk and discuss heirloom vegetables and heritage fruit trees, which is sort of the, defin- the names that we use in Australia, who see them only as being ones that, that can be, um, that have a history or have a story <coughs> behind them or have been around for a long time. Mm. And a bit of 
became clear to me as I started doing the research that heirloom, in the way that words change, heirloom actually is synonymous with open pollinated. And and I it was a decision that I needed to make at the time mm. when I was when I was working on the book. And it seemed to me that that to try and produce a book like this and call some of them open pollinated and some of them heirloom, it just became ridiculous. And I thought about calling them all just open pollinated. And again, I don't think that that would have had any sort of... Um, that doesn't sound very interesting. Well, it, 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 a wide appeal. It was, it was almost too scientific. And, and the more I read about it, the more I realised that they had become interchangeable terms. And mm. in some cases we talk about modern heirlooms, or I talk in there about modern heirlooms, and they're ones that have been bred more recently, but bred by using normal crossbreeding methods um, and being grown out through seven generations so that you actually have a, a new a new variety or colour. I love that term, Penny, actually, modern heirloom. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, so, um, but also by, by, by sticking to the word heirloom, mm. you're acknowledging... The history mm. of tomatoes. Yeah. I mean, some of mm. the some of the individual um, varieties, the stories behind them are so yeah. fascinating. Mm. But but it's also more than that because it's also acknowledging how important heirlooms are across all the different edible plants. Yes. So you're yeah. talking about sweet potatoes. There are so many amazing sweet potato varieties grown in South America and in other countries around the world. And we need to preserve that, that mm. amazing abundance that has been bred for thousands of years mm. by, by humanity because we're losing it. With the seed multinational seed companies taking over smaller seed companies, we've lost something close to 90% of our heirloom varieties. Unbelievable, isn't it? Oh, it's frightening, uh, which actually. Is, which is really scary. So it was part of that whole conversation of bringing heirlooms to the forefront that, of how important they are. Yeah, and, that's and that's why we need gardeners because we're not mm. turning this industrial agriculture ship around and you know anytime yeah. soon. Like that's it's right. going to be a big Train struggle. People, What's that? Train more people, Chris. A- absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yeah, excite more gardeners. Have people have people take their amateur passion, if you will, mm. their, uh, seriously. <laughs> Encourage people to say, look, you've really got a big role to play here in preserving mm. agrobiotiversity. If I can use that term, yeah. Yes. Definitely. And one of the really interesting things that's come out of Margot's um, thing in Tasmania is there are now some really good seed people in Tasmania who are providing a huge range of different heirloom tomato seeds. So mm. It's quite a hot spot, isn't it? It is a real hot spot, um, and they're all listed in the book. And with the 220-odd tomato varieties that are in the book, every single one of them is available from a seed seller in Australia. Mm, so that, I, that, was the, that was the criteria that I mm. used is yep. that you had to be, there are right. fabulous other tomatoes around, so, but I wanted people to be able to go and buy the seed. Yep. So, and, so every single one is available. Yep, which is brilliant. Now, one of the other projects that you mention in the book is the Dwarf Tomato Project. Yeah. Do you want to quickly mention that? Um, yeah, look, the Dwarf Tomato Project is, um, in Australia is run by a woman called Petrina Nusky-Small in New South Wales, and you can actually Google Dwarf Tomato Project and, and you will find um, what she's doing. She did it in conjunction with Craig Lahoulier in the United States, um, and they had huge teams of volunteers behind both of them. Uh, and what they wanted to do was there are dwarf tomatoes, which are different to bush tomatoes. Mm. Dwarf tomatoes actually have quite thick trunks, and they're sometimes called tree tomatoes. And they're smaller growing, so that they're really good for pots. And um, quite a lot of them have potato leaves and rugose oh. potato leaves. So, that, so there's some, you know, some really interesting 
things around those. Um, but they were breeding crossing. That what they wanted. To, most dwarf tomatoes had really boring tomatoes on them. Right. Um, and that was they were bred in the early 1900s. Uh, but what they decided to do was to cross some of these dwarf tomatoes with the heirloom tomatoes and try and get some interesting colours and varieties and all that sort of thing. So they've been working on that for a long time, you know, about 14 years, because they, they won't release seed until they've gone through seven generations of growing them out. Um, and Petrina um, has on her website seed for sale for things like um, kookaburra cackle is one of her gorgeous <laughs> wow. deep red tomatoes, yeah. Uluru ochre, which is a gorgeous orange tomato, um, uh, Banksia Queen, which is a yellow so tomato. I'm that one this year, Penny. Yeah, it's me too. And um, and and they're just the whole the whole project got a bit stymied because of the um, uh, customs regulations when viroids were discovered um, for um, tomato and potato and the other Solanaceae in the US. Suddenly, there was a complete hold put on any sort of cross any tomato seed coming into Australia, which was totally necessary. Yep. You cannot, you should not bring tomato seed into Australia ever. So if you're thinking about taking mm. some in your pocket while you're overseas, <laughs> don't, don't. Um, it, the viroids could wipe out the tomato industry and the potato industry in Australia. Goodness me. Um, it's serious, isn't it? So it, yes. it, it's serious stuff and people need to take customs seriously. But these days, if you want to bring tomato seed in, you need to have a phytosanitary certificate and 20% of the seed needs to be grown out by customs before they, the seed is released. So it's really expensive. Um, but it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we need to do is preserve the tomatoes that we've got here in Australia, Absolutely. which is what, what we're trying to yeah. do with the book. Yeah. So if you want something new and unusual, um, go have a look at, on Petrina. Have you guys stuff. reviewed the um, that Siberian variety at all? There's that? one called Siberian. So, well, yeah, yeah, sorry. Good. Yeah, yeah, because... Yeah. Um, I'm yet to grow that properly, but allegedly it is much more cold tolerant. Yeah, well, that's yeah. one of the things yeah. that the botanic gardens in Tassie were doing, mm. is picking out the cold tolerant ones. So there's right. another one called Moscovich, which is a really Sounds nice cold tolerant. Cold tolerant. <laughs> and um, yeah. Olomovic mm-hmm. and um, uh, Stupice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they're all, all cold tolerant ones that are doing really well. So for late Tassie. finishing or early starting? Early starting. Oh, okay. Or late okay. Yes, and yeah. they're highlighted in the book. Wow, okay. And he's actually written um, some lists. And there's still more in amongst, of course, all of them have particular characteristics, but Penny's put these little um, quick pick lists in there, which I think, I love that page. It's really useful for people to understand. Oh, yes. Oh, I've only got a short amount of time left. Right, I need to look for this one and grow that. Mm. And yes. Get a result. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's excellent. Um, Karen, we should quickly mention, too, that um, um, you've had actually got a bit of a personal history with tomatoes. You mentioned your cousin earlier, but um, your maternal grandfather was actually connected with the tomato industry. Yes, he did. I know I sort of unpacked all that to, to um, I suppose, just to find out because I knew that it was there. And it, it just then that was the way of telling the story of some of the growing in the, in the Golden Valley, you know, some of the early growing in Australia. Mm-hmm. Obviously a lot earlier than that, and I detail that as well, but, you know, having a personal connection. So, yeah, my grandfather used to grow for the sauce industry. He used to grow corn for the canning industry as well so, in, during the war. Wow. But, um, yeah. They also had, um, they used to have, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, they used to have um, workers come from um, internment camps to work on the farms at that time during the war because during the war suddenly... The um, you know the neighbours that had been Italian or German or other nationalities that they that that um, 
one part of the world decided they were at war with all got rounded up and put into these camps very loosely, very loosely guarded, I should say. They not only had gardens in their camps, but they also were taken out to work on farms, as amongst other things, with, you know, a guard with a gun. But the, you know, they would pass the gun to the guard as they, as he got down from the truck and then pass it, <laughs> and then he passed it back to them. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty casual, but yeah, that, that's just, I mean, it's hard to believe. You think of, you just don't think of things like that are happening in Australia. But exactly. Really Karen, you've got this gorgeous photo of your father's truck. Yeah, um, my father used to then cut in the separately. Um, on the other side of the family, he used to cut tomatoes and, uh, he's now 88, so, you know, certain things may have slipped away from memory. But as soon as I asked him, you know, when did you cut tomatoes? Well, I started in 1951. <laughs> and it was a such and such, which I've forgotten now, such and such Bedford truck. And <laughs> I can remember every detail of the yes. truck. Yes, so. fabulous, fabulous. Now, we we uh, would be remiss if we don't also mention Janice's I, contribution to, to the that. book. There, look, there are 60 fabulous recipes in the Beautiful book. Photos. Beautiful photos. Beautiful yes. photos. Um, Really well documented and researched recipes from some of the top chefs in Australia and even a couple of overseas mm. chefs. And it's got my grandfather's tomato sauce recipe and oh. Karen's. My Karen? grandma's green tomato pickle. Right. <laughs> from, the, from, the, um, from the grandfather that grew the tomatoes. So. Fantastic. Yeah. But as, as well as the recipes, um, Janice goes into great detail to show all the various methods of, of um, preserving yep. tomatoes, which is, which is fabulous mm. because, um, you know, you, you don't really think about preserving all that much unless you've got a glut and then you, you typically think, oh, yes, I'll either make a chutney or mm. I'll, yeah. I'll bottle them. But there's so many other yep. ways. I mean, I've, I wouldn't have thought of going to the trouble of, of drying tomatoes, yep. for instance, but when you read what Janice has written, it makes so much sense to have those in your store cupboard. Yes. And I think that, that her section is the same as Penny's and mine in that instead of just having a line or two, which is what you often get with some of this information, we've, we've had, because we've self-published, as Penny said, we had the luxury of being able to write all the detail we needed to put in to yep. really explain our sections properly. Yep, yep. Well, it's, a, it's an absolutely fantastic book. Congratulations to, uh, well, to all three of you. But absolutely. Even though Janice probably isn't listening, but, uh, <laughs> but well done. And... Um, we have very kindly for our listeners um, got two, um, two copies of uh, this book um, available. This is part of our um, 3CR Gardening Show supporters segment. So if you'd like to uh, be able to grab a copy of one of these books um, and support the 3CR Gardening Show um, for a cost of $60, which is the recommended retail price, you can grab one of these copies, and I'm sure Penny wouldn't mind signing it to you if Very you're happy. happy to sign it. If yep. you uh, ring in and request who you want it to sign to. If you do want it posted, it would be uh, an extra $10 for postage. But uh, to grab one of these copies, you could, you could uh, pick it up from uh, the station here uh, at 21 Smith Street in uh, Fitzroy. Uh, but $60 to support the... Uh, the 3CR Gardening Show. We have two copies only, so you do need to jump on the line nice and quickly and uh, give Jan all your details. Um, but Pam, uh, yes? can I just say that if you miss out on these two, that um, Karen and I are both selling them through our websites. Okay. Um, and also they're in bookshops. And if you feel that you can't afford a copy, that um, Libraries are gradually acquiring copies as well. Brilliant. Or you can go into... Yeah, I'll get the Burnley Library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to you, Burnley Library has one. <laughs> oh, it, it already does? 
Burnley Library has one, yeah. You, wow, gee, you, you don't muck around. No, there, he yeah. doesn't, does he? Aaron <laughs> probably donated it to the library. Oh, okay. No, no, they, no? they actually oh, bought okay. it through a library. Okay. I tried to get it by through me, but they bought it through, through a library. Uh, library oh, good yep. stuff. Yep. Oh, well, there you go. Look... Thanks so much for talking to us uh, this morning, Karen. And um, once again, congratulations. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, epistle (laughs) all about tomatoes. So uh, thanks again. Bye. 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 Um, Karen's website's Edible Eden Design. I think it's just edibleeden.com.au. Just edibleeden, okay. And and mine is pennywoodwood.com.au. Okay, fantastic. Well done. Um, and yes, <laughs> how long has it actually taken the, two, the um, three of you? It, it, There's a lot of research it, gone look, into it's, it. It was about eighteen months in the actual writing. Mm. But we, uh, well, I know I and I'm, I know Karen did too. Um, we really worked seven days a week, um, eight hours a day on it. So, wow. yeah, it was huge. Mm. Yeah. I've never worked so hard on anything. Um, in you know, because we had a deadline, we had to get it finished. Right. Had to get the research done. Had to get the photographs taken, and you know we travelled all over the place trying to get the photographs. And so many people helped, um, interviewed so many different people. So mm. there's all these amazing different stories. And just my favourites, or one of my favourite stories, is the front cover. So those tomatoes on the front cover are actually grown by Sam Hidalgo uh, at Diggers. And former Diggers, student of mine. Yeah, he's a, there you go. Such, <laughs> such a gorgeous guy, and mm. he. Um, he, they were so generous in letting and giving me these tomatoes yeah. to yes. use, and it was taken by Kirsten Bresciani, who's a wonderful local photographer and does a bit of work for Organic Gardener. And she did such a gorgeous job with them, and I sort of turned up at her place and we got it all set. It was amazing. But then the basket, which is a really beautiful basket, is made by one of my closest and oldest friends, Liz Souter, who is a stunning basket maker, mm. um, and she died. Just before, oh, right. um, just after mm. we'd taken the photo, oh, so she gosh. was able wow. to see the photo. Yeah. Oh. Um, but it, so every time I pick it up, I, I think of Liz, and and the book is full of those mm. sort of stories, of yes. connections and people and people that I've talked to, and you know, so so many people were involved in the book. So it's mm. very much not just our book; it's a much wider community. None of it would have happened without Margot. Yeah. So you know. All the, and this whole group of people in Tasmania who did so much for us, and a wonderful woman who did the editing up in New South Wales. So, you know, it was. It's a real collaboration. Like, yes, mm. It's an enormous collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So. fantastic. And it, we should be selling it for $80, but <laughs> I figured it wouldn't sell for that. So. <laughs> <clears throat> so it's 376 pages if people are wondering why it's so expensive. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of information in there, I can tell you. There really is. Amazing. Chris, let's get back to you. Sure. Are you still um, doing any collaborating with um, the Neighbourhood uh, Community Centre? Yes. So um, so how it works, or what we did recently, just to give you a, a concrete example, is that I have a subject which is called Horticulture for Sustainable Communities and I had an amazing cohort this year, very enthusiastic. So we had a propagation day for the Carlton Neighbourhood Learning Centre Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Cultivating Community and Collingwood Children's Farm. The idea was to bring community gardeners uh, to Burnley and then we just went absolutely hard at it in our nursery, growing everything okay. from ginger to turmeric to sweet potatoes to taro. Um, Kang Kong was a big one, seed and cuttings. So that's the aquatic water spinach. Yes. Which uh, so, so the idea is to then do more propagation outside of subject teaching and then 
take those plants to those communities so they can plant them out or, or they can come back to Burnley to uh, pick them up. Because what I found is a sort of side thing that's really fascinating and not surprising is that when you invite different groups, migrant and refugee groups out, they're excited to plant stuff, but they actually really love the gardens at Burnley. So that becomes this kind of side benefit. Oh, that's great. And you see, um, I mean, really genuinely people just sort of saying, wandering around, just absolutely loving it. Because they are really beautiful gardens. Um, you know, and then some of the oldest. Oh, they're stunning gardens. In fact, I think some of the, there's a couple of the trees there that are actually the oldest known, you know, colonial plantings in Victoria. They're mm. actually older than the Botanic Gardens. So, mm. um, in terms of trees that have survived, I should say. So anyway, that's still definitely going on. So it's just con- continuing those relationships with different community gardens and also the people who try to build up these gardening programs, exactly as Penny described, to recognise that uh, there are people who deeply miss getting their hands dirty when they come here. And there was a, a, a woman from New Guinea, uh, Tessie, who through the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre really gave this incredible moving preamble to, to this big gathering we had talking about when she had the opportunity, because, I mean, the people of New Guinea are ancient gardens, right? Yes. I mean, amongst the first, you could argue. Yes. And um, she just described being given the opportunity to grow um, sweet potatoes, which she's an expert in, at the Bagulay Farm at Clayton, which many people know, where a uh, uh, fair share have their huge mm. growing. And yes. Les Bagulay generously gives his, has been giving his land for people to grow for 20 years. And she just described collapsing into the dirt, and not just her hands, which we always, but getting her elbows dirty, like literally <laughs> rubbing her arms. And the, it, so that kind of passion that you hear from people mm. uh, makes you think we need to do more of this. Exactly. Um, and of course, the other thing that we're really trying to, to grow at the moment, no pun intended, is the food gardens at the YMCA recreation centres. Oh, yes. So, so former student Kit Duncan Jones, who was a pool attendant at the Northcote Pool, got this fantastic little kitchen garden going, and it's got this linked to the cafe there because or the kiosk slash cafe because they no longer sell junk food and so we're we've got a group of volunteers now and we have that garden um all planted out or nearly planted out for summer but the idea is to actually do another another a few more but to really try and uh get them going and then kind of hand them over to the local community mm, mm. so uh yeah. I'd forgotten about that project. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that that's still progressing. That's great. Absolutely. Well, the thing is, as you can imagine in, Nor- in Northcote, you have no shortage of young people. <laughs> True. Um, so, so that's sort of an easy one, I think, and yes. exciting. And the, and the, um, uh, you know, that uh, I think I, was I spoke to you, spoke to you about that here, did I? Another yes. Time? You yeah. Did. So yes, I yeah. mean, just briefly, there are all these advantages to getting these things going in at aquatic centres. Because you have most swimming pools in Australia have huge amounts of land. They use a lot of water for the pools. Yes. So and they have conservation water plans, but there's no problem having water for a garden. And they're increasingly becoming these uh, community centres and hubs mm. that that do everything at, you know from meditation classes to yoga to swimming to the gym to the tennis courts. Exactly. With this huge focus on health. Yes. And so there are these ideal places to create. Gardens that promote healthy eating. Health, healthy eating, yes, absolutely. Exactly. So that I think is very exciting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now the other thing we uh, I spoke um, just a bit earlier mm. in the year to three of your students yep. who ah, have this yes. fundraiser project. So that's a brilliant idea. Yes. Charlotte and Pat and Kirsty. Yes. Yes. So the idea of of actually yeah, talk, speaking of underutilized land, so identifying schools that have huge amounts of land that are neglected. 
you know, that they just have mowing gangs mow it and don't really do anything on it. And that is quite a common story. Mm. You know, you see schools that have large areas of, of grass or turf, which they don't actually use even for kids to muck around on. They're just a management hassle. So Pat and Charlton Kirsty's idea through FarmerAiser is that you then convert some of these areas, you know, with community support into market gardens, mm. and you sell locally, and then you... Um, that the money raised then goes back to, to the school. And you integrate it into educational programs, environmental education, food growing, possibly to on, ongoing horticultural qualifications. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they had a Pick My Project project that didn't get up, but that's okay. They're still, still powering ahead. They've just got a free greenhouse, which you're establishing at the oh, moment. Oh, wonderful. So, um, yeah, I think that's – it's exciting when um, you see students who – Take, who, who take a kind of social entrepreneurial approach very early, who say, right, what can we actually do and really commit to it? So they're, they're going for deductible gift recipient charitable status. They're all, all really powering ahead with that. So I think however that evolves, that'll create something for sure. Mm. Yeah. And again, as you said, um, like with, with, with your pools, um, yeah. it's, it's the perfect hub to talk about um, growing for healthy eating, and schools yeah. uh, are exactly the same. I mean, those yeah. students should be learning how to grow, um, mm. participating in the in the project, and also learning to eat more healthily. Definitely. So it all it all ties in. It's wonderful opportunity. And I think the thing that you know I've really learned as a you know, horticultural educator in the last eight years is that you've got to get out there in the community, whether it's local government or council offices you're talking to, or people in community gardens, and just emphasise how training and skills are important mm. because projects do fall down because people. Fair enough, I have a go, have a crack at it. But there are just these difficulties that people encounter, and often that is just simply the labour, mm. you know, um, or being uncertain about watering or when to plant things, just that ongoing maintenance effort. Yes. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I think ultimately for these things to be really successful, you do need paid facilitators, garden workers involved to support the community. Mm. Uh, you know, long term, I think, anyway, yeah. if it's going to get much, much bigger. Yes, yeah. Well, that, it's been shown that, like, with, with school gardens, which yeah. I've, I've been involved with in mm. the past, um, again, there's always the problem you might have a very enthusiastic member of staff yeah. plus maybe the principal, but um, being the nature of, 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 of staff, they, they change, they yeah. leave, they go to other, other schools. That's right. And, and if there's no one else to continue the work, mm. the whole project just falls into disarray. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you do have to have some sort of ongoing commitment yeah. to all of these projects. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's encouraging to see some of my students now leaving and getting jobs in this area, you know, that there's an awareness now that it's good to have someone who... Um, you know, has that has that background, having been trained in horticulture. Mm. And one student, Bree Townsend, uh, got a job in Murrumbina as the as the cook and the gardener. Wow! Straight out of <laughs> university, so that was exciting. <laughs> wow! Um, you know, she's powering ahead. Oh, she's going to be yeah. very busy though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Doing both. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Oh, amazing. Um, Penny, let's get back. I know we only we, we mentioned the one article that um, was just so fascinating, but we should just quickly mention um, getting back to Organic Gardener. Um, this latest, there are so many wonderful articles in there that people should should consider picking yeah, up a copy and having a look. <coughs> um, there's a really there's a really um, nice one on native fruits, which Julie Weatherhead has written. So she has a really excellent book 
out um, and and um, so that that's really good um, there's water saving tips which we're all going to be confronting this summer absolutely yeah. you know I think that's that's really important there's actually an extract from the book um, from the tomato book so if you want to just dip your toe in the water for, for that um, and there's also some writing around hemp so and the the use, uses of hemp and the fact that mm. it's now going to, it's becoming easier to grow hemp as distinct from marijuana mm. um it's a totally different plant I mean, oh, it's yes. the same species but it is so totally different that has no THC in it so it has no drug application at all but it's been used for all sorts of things from mm. medicine all the way through to building houses you mm. know you can use you can and making clothes and you know a whole range of different things that, but but because we had this attitude that all um of these plants were dangerous or yep. drugs it was not allowed to be grown so in the very early times in Australia you could grow it but then once the whole drug thing appeared all those plants were banned but now common sense is breaking out and, <laughs> and these plants are being allowed to be grown again so um, there's a really interesting article about that and about there are still some hoops to jump through if you want to grow it but there are more and more people who are, are growing it and it's becoming mm. an important crop for all sorts of different mm. reasons so so that's really interesting and um, yeah and um, Matt and Lentil who uh, have written another book um, about but it's about the village they're, so their village and I think it's actually called the village so yeah. there's an extract from that book which is which is really interesting too terrific so there's some good stuff in it yep yep Chris, yeah. are you having any sort of... You, you mentioned yam daisies mm, earlier yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and Aboriginal um, um, agriculture. Sure. Um, have you got any... Are you having any collaboration with Bruce Pascoe, for instance? Oh, I'm, I've, I've, he and I have emailed each other. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> no, so it's... Uh, and and I, I caught up with a, uh, a Barkindji woman last week, Zena, who's... Um, uh, deal, talking to Bruce about stuff, we're, we're trying to build on a build up a collaboration, but it's a bit vague at this stage, to be right. perfectly honest. Okay. Um, but but what I have said to him uh, via email is that if he needs a growing site in the city, as opposed to out at East Gippsland where he is, that it would be fantastic to use the Burnley Field Station just as a sort mm-hmm. of uh, because it's in the middle of the city. Mm. Um, so. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, like a lot of people, I've been extremely sort of uh, stimulated by his, by uh, what's it called, dark emu. Dark emu. Yeah, um, I think it should be compulsory reading. Yeah, to be honest. Um, yeah. All high school students. Mm. It's, it's really interesting for me because I'd actually read, and it's, it's so many things that come out of that book. You know, apart from, I mean, the architecture stuff, the building stuff is almost as interesting as the food yes, stuff, to be yes. honest. But um, but what really sort of blew my mind is that. I, my dad has this collection of uh, pretty uh, amazing collection of books by explorers and settlers. Okay. And he, he was the second biggest collector of 20th century Australian exploration at one stage. Anyway, that's obscure. But because of that, you know, being exposed to these books as a kid, I'd read some of these accounts that Bruce mm. draws on. Yes. So like I said, I'd read Governor Gray's description. Because what happened was, as Lieutenant Gray, as he was then, got shipwrecked up at, in the Kimberley. And that's when he first European to see the famous Wandjina figures that Von Daniken thought were astronauts, but that was complete rubbish. And then they were shipwrecked, so they wandered down, um, you know, so they, or did they end up at Monkey Mare? Anyway, they had to walk to Perth, him and his men, and they had an Aboriginal guide with them. Right. Extraordinary account. 
And so I'd read that bit where he comes across this sort of hill and sees these fields. It's not yam daisy. It's it's a different thing. It's a warren. It's a okay. It's a true yam, a dioscory. Okay. Oh, anyway, right. and describes these furrows and all that stuff. And I remember, you know, I suppose I was in my late teens, going, "Wow, that's pretty out there." Huh, okay. And then I sort of moved on. So it just shows that even when you've read that stuff, you need someone like Bruce to say, "Hang on." Read it again. What does this yes. mean? <laughs> right. So what were that, they actually seeing? Yeah. So it's um, and of course. So I'm just. I just love that genus. So, so these things all sort of you know interact or whatever. So I just love true, so-called true yams, and it fascinates me. There's this section between Geraldton and Perth, probably about maybe a band 100 k's from the coast inland, where mm. uh, I think Noongar people and other other different Aboriginal groups too. I'm not sure about that. Um, really intensely cultivated this particular plant. So I've always got that practical link to the future too, which is um, you know, how do you make some of these things more mainstream? And I did a, I did a quick and dirty study this year with uh, Meg Taylor, uh, an uh, urban hort graduate for Hort Innovation Australia on the current state of the native veg industry. Okay. And, of course, one of the massive issues that came out of our uh, you know, month-long study was, of course, how do you make sure that Aboriginal people retain intellectual property rights uh, or are the, are the main beneficiaries of this sort of cultivation? Um, so, yeah, that's just that's a huge issue. Yeah, actually. Can I, yeah. Can I just add to yeah. that? I actually talked to Bruce Pascoe yeah. about that when he did yeah. a talk down at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Yeah. And he said one of the things that you have to do mm. is get local Aboriginal people employed. Yeah. Working with you on those things. Yeah. So that so that you're not just taking all that information and using it, mm. that sort of cultural um, taking over of yes. Sure. Yes. So Absolutely. that the Aboriginal community is actually benefiting yeah. from the exportation of their knowledge. So I, I just think that's really, really mm. important. Yeah. And they're doing some good stuff on that actually in the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens where mm. they have um, some um, Aboriginal people actually working in the in the gardens mm. who are helping them with, yeah. the, with the work that they're doing there. So yeah. I, that's what I would be saying to you. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's front and centre of my mind. But, I mean, I think the thing is there are plants, for example, oh, well, well, the, uh, they're not called St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Co-op anymore, Westgate Biodiversity, so Patrick Honan down there. So there's a lot of Aboriginal food plants that have been grown for years already. So they don't want to stop selling them. So what they do now is all proceeds from those sales not not just a proportion all no. go to the curry heritage trust right Good. so there's there's different ways of yeah. doing it and yes, i think yeah. the other thing too and i look forward to talking to bruce pascoe about this eventually is there are, there are plants like warrigal greens right that have been a a, a vegetable overseas mm. for 150 years yes and it was to my amazement i've been to brazil twice in the last two years looking at urban agriculture the mainstream spinach in brazil is Warrigal greens. Good heavens. So, because European spinach is just a nightmare to grow in a yes. mostly mm. tropical country, not entirely yes, tropical. Yes. So that's sort of, they don't bother. And they actually have their own indigenous spinach, Brazilian spinach, which I grow, but they just prefer tetragonia. So there are, there are just, so how you, so, so for some species, the cat's already out of the bag, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Although, of course, you could still have local, you could, you know, in this world of novel crops, boutique foods, there are huge opportunities for Indigenous people to sort of rebadge them, if you will. So just because, you know, warrigal greens are already an international crop mm. doesn't mean you can't have a, a sort of local flavour to it. Yeah. Because the yes, du- the, sure. Because the Dutch are breeding low oxalic acid New Zealand spinach warrigal greens as we speak. Okay. And with their, oh, that's, that's with their, plant, with their plant breeding tradition, 
that will happen, right? Yes. So, yeah. Fantastic. Mm. I, I should also mention yeah. that um, as part of the display with the Immigration Museum, yeah. Miss Pascoe has been involved with that too. Sure. So they're not just featuring um, yeah. new immigrants yeah. and their food, but they're also yeah. featuring sure. all the, uh, the Koori culture and, and, yeah. and their food groups as well. Oh, so. I'll just quickly, uh, Pam, say that on, on Bruce's point about, and he wrote an article in Mianjin, which came out last week or something, and because of that, my having read those sources that he read, well, many of them, I totally agree with him. I don't know how we do it. People have to go back and read those sources to, just to have their minds blown afresh, right? Yeah, right. That's, I just say that. Go and yes. go and read history. Yes, but, um, and, but I, I think yeah. we haven't actually explained mm. to the listeners who sure. may not all know yeah. that, that what Bruce is talking about is the fact that the First Nations people of this country yeah. were farmers. Sure. And, and that yeah. was, has just been completely written out of their history. And that's what Bruce is trying to, to bring back and yes. inform all of us that they were not hunter gatherers. I mean, they did that too, but they were farmers as well. And yes. they, were, yeah. they farmed fish and they farmed um, yam daisies and they farmed um, yams and a huge range of different That's things. right. And, and, and what he's saying is this is not just a matter of interpretation. No. If you're sceptical, go and read. Yeah. These people had no interest in. And obviously Aboriginal people themselves had the knowledge, but if you want to read European accounts of this stuff, it goes right back to the first fleet mm. or to the explorers, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. Describing buildings, constructions, fish farming, eel farming, cultivation of yam daisies or warren in Western Australia, whatever it is, or, or true other yams in Northern Australia. It's a, it's such a rich history. Mm. And until you, you, know, the, you shine the torch, the light on it, you can just ignore it. It's terrible, mm. right? So it's... It's not like a kind of vague interpretation. There are these very rich accounts of this stuff. Mm, yeah. Fantastic. We must go to uh, our caller. We've got uh, Sarah online from Dallas. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Um, I wanted to say that uh, I need somebody to report everything uh, in regard of food. They Like they noticed... Um, not normal like when I buy something I wash and then become rotten that means uh, it's not really a food it's like uh, rubbish <laughs> so so you're experiencing um, food that you buy that is not in good condition is that what you're saying I don't know what they do with this food. Uh, when you wash the food, I think, I believe they put chemical on it. And then when you wash the, the uh, fruits or the vegetable, become uh, bad. Okay. And, well. Uh, I want somebody to, to watch this, to monitor uh, these, uh, these things. Well, as we as we said, I think we've spoken to you about this before, Sarah. The the really only way around all of this is to grow your own food, or yeah, to buy from farmers markets mm. where they uh, you're buying directly from the producer. Alfington open right now. I'm heading there straight after this. Yes, I'm very con- <laughs> yeah, but I'm very concerned about this because, uh, as I said, the people, younger people, they doesn't grow uh, well. It is unhealthy and it causes dangerous. Well, that's what that's. It's all. It all comes down to um, discussions like this, Sarah, to keep people aware of um, 
of uh, growing without using any um, any uh, you know pesticides, herbicides um, to really grow healthy food. So it's it's all about education for the young people, and and the demand is increasing more and more. People are much more conscious now of uh, where their food is coming from, which is why. Yeah. The advent of, of all these farmers' markets have sprung up and they're doing so well. So uh, it, it, it is happening. It, the movement is definitely there and it's, it's getting stronger and stronger, Sarah. Okay? I want to give you an example uh, that I bought uh, uh, some eggs and I said, this is free range, and I said to the people at the shop, uh, two days later, I said, the, the eggs is, uh, smell bad and it's not fresh. Um, something wrong with these free-range eggs. And they said to me, if you don't like the eggs, you go somewhere else. And then every shop, you you say something, you mention something to them, they don't accept it. They just say, go buy somewhere else. Mm. And then where are you going to go and buy somewhere? I mean, you you end up getting nothing. <laughs> Well, as I said, um, you know, farmers' markets are definitely the way to go. Okay, we must move on, Sarah. Thanks for your call. Bye. Thanks. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, I mean, being an organic grower, I'm very much in favour of not using those things. But by the same token, you know, we have some of the safest and most reliable food systems in the world in Australia. So. Yeah, I've got to say, having taken students to... Uh, Butler Market Gardens in Heatherton the last few years to see, uh, you know, conventional vegetable production well, with with some sort of shift to, so I would call it semi-organic. But the, uh, yeah, uh, Penny's right. Wow, seeing the washing there, the, the, the double washing of all these things coming mm. off the fields, it sort yeah. of my, it blew my mind, actually. <laughs> no, in other words, and the residue testing, it's, it is it is good here in Australia, relative to other countries, I think. Yep. But still, it doesn't mean... <laughs> No, I'm always going to grow my own organic. Oh, exactly, and we're we're all in the same (laughs) boat. Can I I just go back a second to what Mm. you were talking about before with the the different Australian yams and um, various things? Karen's actually written an article which will be in the next edition of Organic Gardener magazine, which is all about, it includes Warren and... um, I think she got the right botanical name from you just yeah, recently. Yeah, that's true. We did have a conversation last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. so Warren and, and, yeah. very, and other um, introduced yams, but also um, some of the other Australian bulbous plants that you can grow, um, mm. including including Murnong and those sort of things. So if you want to know a bit more, look out for that because it'll be out in December. Mm. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're, we're trying to sort of keep following up and keep informing people about all those, all those things. Mm. What's a, what's a good source for, for, um, acquiring some of these plants if people want to try them at home? It's, for yam daisy, it's, if you go to say the St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Co-op, yes. Skink. Skink, yeah. Uh, even, um, I bought some the other day. The, uh, yam daisies around, um, various, the Karunga up in the hills. Okay. For example. Yep. But some of these other ones are hard. They're, they're not, why they're not mainstream even nursery plants yet? Mm. All right. So can yeah. I can I just add in there? And this is um, mm. this is my sister. So I'll say that first. They have a they have a um, company called Victorian Native Seeds, and they have a seed uh, an area in De- in Denver, which is just out of Castlemaine, where for about ten years now they've been growing indigenous plants and collecting the seed and selling the seed and. 
of the four different plants that Karen described in mm. the article, including Murnong, they sell seed of all of those plants. Okay. So you might want to just do, go. And do they have sell warren? No, 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 because no. that's Western Australia. Sure, yeah, so I said the Victorian seed, they're gotcha. Victorian native seed. Yeah. So, so you know, there, you can buy seed of a lot of these plants as it, well. It, yeah, it, it is. So, so for where, for the two desert sweet potatoes that have yep. huge potential, so that's for those who are into this, Ipomia costata and Ipomia colabra, colabra, so relatives of the mainstream sweet potato, mm-hmm. Only Nindathana seeds in Western Australia, the largest native seed company in Australia, had one of them. Yeah, right. And now they've, they've run out. Uh, <laughs> so presumably they'll have some again soon. They will, but it's, I guess it's, it, so if people are really interested in this, you can type in Jeff Woodall, Jeff with a G, Jeff Woodall native sweet potatoes, and you'll see, you'll come up with various ABC landline mm-hmm. and, and technical reports that he's done amazing work in Western Australia on some of these species. And he, just to say how, you know, it's still uh, in, the inf- in its infancy, this stuff is. He was telling me that when the landline report uh, article came out and there was a report done on the palatability of some of these species, he had emails and phone calls from all over the world. One guy from China said, I can have two shipping containers in Fremantle in a week to take the lot. He said, uh, it's sort of not at that stage yet. And we're not really... It, so this yes. is sort of frightening. Yeah. On, yes. So there's, yeah. it's so exciting. Think how scary that is. Mm. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, you have to sort of balance that. How exciting it is that there's this demand potentially. So yep. the opportunities, particularly for Aboriginal people, on the other yes. hand, just be completely overwhelming. So yep. for the time being, I'm kind of glad it's not. Uh, so everything's not so available. Uh, yeah, just leave it at that. Mm, fair enough. Mm. Okay, let's go next to uh, Bill, who's out in Pasco Vale. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I've got a old. Uh, cherry plum tree has been in the backyard for I don't know how long, longer than I've been here, and um, riddled with borer. So I'm wondering, do I get rid of it or get someone in to have a look? What's the best way to go with that? Is it a danger to all the other trees there and fruit trees and so forth? Is it really, really old? Is yeah, it... well, we've been here 20-odd years and mm. it was already there, I don't know, from when it was planted. Like it used to, when we first got here, it would fruit really well but now it's just it's all fruit but it's not nowhere near what is it, it a, it's a, per, a red purple yeah. leaf cherry plum bill is it or purple leaf is it one of those ones when you no, say cherry green leaves green leaves yeah little yeah garden. in my experience they're often self-sown in melbourne if it's, or, or if they're if it's a very old backyard like mine for example has a couple that maybe were planted mm. and the rest are just wild yes mine have a few too yeah um, so if it's really borer-ridden, and if you put it this way, I think if it's no longer productive and you're not enjoying it, then, yeah, maybe get rid of it. That's well, it throws th- lots of beautiful shade. And okay. There's an elm tree next to it and a eucalyptus that towers above them. That's why I was up there, a branch had broken from the eucalyptus, and I was mm. removing it so I could see how it They're sort of fascinating cherry plums, aren't they? Because even when, you know, you get years where they're just attacked by the cherry slug... Or some years they're not. Some years they, you know, if it's, if you're not watering them, and it's droughty, they'll lose their leaves. They always come back, and they're always. Oh, done. they're survivors. Yeah, they're <laughs> unbelievable. They really so I mean, maybe have mercy on it. I don't know. I'll yeah. throw throw to. Uh, they certainly any, feed yeah. the birds too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and the fruit bats. Oh yes. <laughs> I mean, I I think mm. that the tree borers are unlikely to attack the other trees, mm. um, which was part of your question because. Mm-hmm. It, it may well be part of a natural senescence, so that the the tree is getting old. It's um, 
it's struggling a bit that tree borers have moved in and um, you know you may well just lose it anyway from the tree borers so if you're still enjoying it and enjoying the shade, uh, I wouldn't worry about it too much. I'd hang yeah, on to it. Yeah, I'd worry mm. about like, what the danger for other stuff around it. Because up the back, we lost, um, we put in a small apricot, and it was going really well. Like just, and it uh, all of a sudden got covered in like aphids, and, and it just like suddenly died. Like just stand up the toes, and it's gone. Yeah, look, I mean, without actually seeing the tree, it's hard to know what might have caused that. But you would have, if it had been tree borers, you would have seen yeah, evidence. Not borers, of I just, them. you know, just maybe think about it. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, fair enough. What, what causes apricots is just suddenly. Oh, a few different things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Particularly when they're young, and sometimes the you know they're just not thriving trees um, in the first place. You know there are some mm. trees that when you transplant them, they're probably not going to survive no matter where you put them. So no, it was going really well, and then and then because um, we put a cherry tree near it, a small yep. cherry tree ceiling, and that was looking like a very bad condition, and it just situation stopped. The cherry tree looks fine now, and okay. uh, and the cartridges. It will be something in the soil, or should we not plant something there again, or, or not? Um, look, it's probably not something in the soil. I, I uh, you know, put a, had a bit of compost in, you know, put a, put a bit more food in there, and I'd, I'd plant in there again. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. okay. Right. And just quickly, I, I possible off here to get an idea of, um, you know, like a tree arborist in the area or something. You know, good ones, not chainsaw massacres. Uh, uh, just, uh, just search arborist and, if, and ask them if they're qualified. I'd, I'd, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Right. Uh, next up, we have uh, Terry out in uh, Chelsea. Good morning, yeah. Terry. Good morning. Um, I have a tomato question. Sure. <laughs> I rang up quite early this morning when you just first of all started. But anyway, um, my question is: we have um, fruit forming already on yep. our um, tomatoes. Should we remove that? No. No, 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 no don't, don't, re- don't remove your fruit once it's started forming. Okay. Um, and, um, it's too precious. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, when you, what sort of tomatoes are they? I don't know, because we've bought a, I know there's a Roma there, but we've bought a few different ones from our um, garden, you know, a yep. community garden, yep. and they'd grown them on from seed, and okay. really... You know, lovely and healthy and whatever. Good. Um, yeah. Look, it depends. Uh, some of the romas are actually um, bush types, yeah. um, so you don't want to prune those at all because no. you will, if you take off the growing tips, you're not going to get anything like as many fruit because they only most bush tomatoes will flower once and they'll yeah. flower mostly all at the same time. Yeah. And if you prune them, you lose tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. I think there's only one roma or something. Yeah. I can't remember the, the other one. The others, if they're indeterminate so that they've got big sprawling plants, mm. you, you can take out some of the, um, some of the yeah. side growth, some of the lateral yeah. growth if you want to. Okay. Um, and and um, encourage it to grow. It depends how much space you've got and how close you've planted them together. Yeah, so they're fairly, you know, well... Apart, yeah. yeah. If they're if they're indeterminants and you're not going to prune them, they really should be about a metre apart. Yeah. Okay. So if they're closer that than that, apart. then it might be worth pruning to three main leaders to okay, um, so make sure that apart. you've got a bit of air movement. Yes. Um, around them, and I always take off the lower leaves on any plants. Yes, actually, on one of them, and I don't know what type that is, but there is a few of the lower leaves that are looking a bit, you know, iffy. Take them off. Yes. Yeah, so I'll just pinch those. them off. Yep. Yeah. 
yes, yeah. That plant doesn't look quite so healthy, actually. But, okay, well, so try... I just removed that. The, um, remove the leaves. lower leaves, try giving it a bit of a feed, and just keep an eye on it because, it, you know, it might have... Tomato, yeah. russet, mush, or something. Um, yeah. If it keeps getting worse, you, it, it may be just worth remove just removing it, it um, yeah. so that yeah. it doesn't spread to your other plants. Yeah. All right then. Okay. Well, thank you. That Thanks, was a good, um I listened all the way this morning. I was out on my walk, and yeah, it was good. Great. Yeah. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the good work. Okay. Bye bye. Incidentally, we didn't mention, Penny, that uh, you can, if you if you prune off your laterals, you can actually um, grow from those you again. You can. You can put them into a glass of water on your windowsill and they'll grow roots. Yes. So after about three weeks. Yeah. And, um, and that means that you can have a second planting of tomatoes, which is really good if you're growing some of the dwarf or the, or the bush tomatoes because, because they sort of really only fruit once, you might want to put in a second crop, so do some succession planting with that. Cross yeah. your fingers that the, the, the warm weather lasts, yeah, but, exactly. um, but yeah. why not have a go? Yeah. They, I did that last year because I'd done it years before and I thought oh, I'll give it another shot. And I, when the laterals the, uh, were quite, in other words, it was probably about this time of year I did it. Mm. Yes. So we just even with those first ones, I, I just, um, yeah, exactly as Penny said, I just potted them up when it, once they'd established had roots, put them in the ground, and they were fine. Mm, yeah, yeah, but I'll tell you what, though, in my experience, you've got to be really careful not to use the actual suckers off the base of the plant. Yeah. They're, yes, they, yes. they're pretty hopeless at flowering for some reason, which I've never really looked yeah. into. It's got to be true laterals. True laterals, Between yep. the main stem and the leaf. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, we've had a, a query. Uh, is there a community gardens in the Broad Meadows area? Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Is there? Yeah, so, so, so that's Hume, City, you know, Hume Council. And Jason Summers out there, who's the head of the parks uh, section, has uh, helped uh, create quite a, quite a few little small ones in 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 Broad Meadows. So, or at least in Hume, okay, it's much bigger than Broad Meadows. So, I think probably just contact council. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Councils are often a really good yeah, source yeah, of they that are. sort of definitely. information. Aren't yep. they? but they definitely exist. Okay, fantastic, yep. brilliant. All right. Um, you are. Uh, you have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're nearly out of time, but we will just try and get to uh, another caller. And we have uh, Vicky out in Maribyrnong. Good morning, Vicky. Vic, not Vic. Oh, Vic. <laughs> sorry, Vic. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Sorry, Vic. <laughs> I have an address, but I don't use dresses. Okay. <laughs> Okay, cooking, mm. cooking tomatoes have less, fewer seeds, so they are more flesh and fewer seeds. You can, you can use any tomato for cooking, but if you want to make some of the amazing sauces and things like that, then you really need to grow a cooking tomato. Um, things like Costoluto Genovese, um, uh, Amish paste, Roma tomatoes, um, they're actually bred to have lots of flesh and few seeds. So that, that's the main difference between them. So if you use them for eating, what's the difference? Um, Maybe not quite as juicy. Um, you know, some of some of the um, beautiful beefsteak tomatoes have this, you know, fabulous juiciness to them, which are much nicer when you're eating them fresh. Ah, uh-huh. finally someone's there. <laughs> <laughs> there are some mysteries in life, aren't there? Yeah. Look, if you're going to produce something, stick it in the container and then pedal it, why can't they put some kind of information on there? Yeah, look, good, good point. 
good point. And and uh, look, I think some people do. Some some growers yeah, well, do. But good enough. Yeah. Responsibility and tell me what I'm buying. Okay. Well, look, if you if you go to your local library and ask them to get in um, this tomato <laughs> tomato book of ours, you can read <laughs> all about it and educate yourself. No, 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 no. You know, common sense from the grower to make sure that the packer puts it on there. Okay. Plain common sense so that you know what you're buying. We're, we we often actually uh, do say that uh, that plant labels um, could be improved greatly. And, and your point of, of uses um, of the particular plant uh, is great as well as we always need the botanical name, which we don't always sure. get. So oh, um, it's a good point. All you need is common sense. That's all you need. Yep, yep. yep. Good point, Vic. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks okay, then. Bye. 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 Ah, we've just about run out of time. Um, it seems to go very quickly yeah, some mornings. Yes. Mm. Um, have you got any fundraisers or anything coming up uh, that you know of, Chris? Uh, no, my mind's gone a bit blank, to be honest. Well, um, apart just from the plant sale at plant Burnley. Plant sale at Burnley. Yep. Um, um, no. <laughs> 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 that I can think of. Um, but don't worry, I'll let you know when there are, okay. you know, especially for yep. uh, Novel Crops Project. Yeah, yeah, yep. fantastic. Yep. And and if you are interested in, in, in the topics we've been discussing this morning, certainly one is people can head down to Werribee to yes. the community garden there. Yep. It's open every single day yep. and you can, you can go in there. Um, is there any problems with communicating with the gardeners down not, there? Not all of them will speak English. No, but yeah. there's but usually there someone usually on other, site. That there are usually other people around who you know, will be able to talk. And it's amazing what you can communicate by sign language. And if you're a gardener, you know, you sort of understand what other gardeners are talking about. Yes, exactly. Yes. And, and I will again mention the, um, the uh, exhibition that's on at the moment at uh, the uh, Immigration Museum because um, that's an exhibition of exactly what we've been talking about this morning um, as, as regards to some of these wonderful mm. um, food crops and uh, our glorious people who have come here to Australia and, and broadened our whole um, our whole culture and horizons our, and eating mm. and eating and, and just everything. so much that they've yeah. contributed to this society. Yeah. So um, yep. I do recommend that one as well. Chris, it's been great to have you in this morning. Been great again. Really appreciate here. it. Um, you're not going to be let off the hook. I am going to take you back next year sure. sometime. Good one. Because um, we love it. Thanks, but, Pam. Uh, a big thank you to uh, Jan and Liz who've been handling all the calls for us this morning. We will, of course, be back at 7.30 next Sunday morning. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.